You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR Saturday Breakfast. And today we're going to hear from uh, Mark Davis, who's a lawyer now and uh, has been representing the uh, Blockade Australia people in Sydney. He gives us a breakdown of what's happened there and uh, the legal ramifications for the Blockade Australia people in Sydney. Uh, the uh, After that, we're going to hear from Kevin. Uh, this is the week that was. And uh, after that, we're going to talk to Don. He's going to give us a very interesting discussion, I think, about how the uh, average total male earnings affect not just the people doing the earning, but the whole fabric of the Australian population's uh, social security system. Uh, And so, of course, with the development of precarity and uh, wage uh, slavery increased. This, of course, has a knock-on effect for people who receive pensions. Of course, you know that it has a knock-on effect for the fabric of society as well. But you know who, who's uh, who's uh, um, uh, got you know yeah, who who would know? <laughs> who would even think it was important? But uh, before we do that, we're going to uh, look into the issue of uh, whistleblowers, uh, Richard Boyle, the former. Australian tax office employee who blew the whistle on the ATO's uh, unseemly uh, uh, unethical debt recovery measures for small business has uh, been, uh, his court case has started in Adelaide and we're going to pursue this issue. And there's, of course, David McBride, a former Australian Defence Force lawyer turned whistleblower who was the person who was behind the information that uh, became the, uh, Afghan, the Afghan papers uh, which divulged uh, Australian soldiers doing uh, fairly uh, dreadful things in uh, war crimes in Afghanistan. Uh, These people are uh, up against it uh, and uh, we did hear that uh, Bernard Kaliri of course has been released uh, but uh, and so that's the first part of the, the program today we're going to be looking at that. Uh, but before we do that, I've got a couple of uh, uh, announcements. Uh, there's going to be a climate rally, big important climate rally today at the State Library, 1pm. Uh, the demands, real zero emissions by 2035, no 
new coal, gas or oil, protect ecosystems and biodiversity and stop native forest logging, protect workers, not billionaires, fully public renewable energy. And it's endorsed by the Friends of the Earth, Uni Students for Climate Justice, Extension Rebellion Victoria, Extinction Rebellion Westside, Blockade, IMARC Coalition, Workers for Climate Action, Victorian Forest Alliance. That's today outside the State Library, 1pm Climate Rally. And you might have noticed there was a very interesting little tidbit about a Formula One driver. I don't remember his name. I do remember why he's retiring. He's retiring because he's worried about, he's concerned about the effect on the climate I've always been wondering about this. You know, we're in a climate emergency and they busily play these uh, uh, Formula One uh, episodes on our TVs as if, you know, life's just going on in a blissful way. So it's really nice to know that someone who actually uh, was part of the coven has realised and has put down his uh, uh, gloves and said publicly that it is a is part of the uh, problem, not part of the solution. Good on you, mate. There was another piece that was a piece of news which was uh, fantastic. I've just found it before I started the program, so it's really important to tell you. It's from the National Native Title Council, the National Justice Project. Today... That was yesterday, I presume. The National Native Title Council received notice that Attorney General Mark Dreyfus QC withdrew the High Court case against Mr Shane Montgomery, which sought to overturn established legal precedent and give the federal government the power to deport Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are not Australian citizens from their own country. You'll remember that this was a particular case where a young fellow with uh, 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 one of his parents was Indigenous uh, and uh, for some reason or other it was decided that uh, he was on unsavoury character and he was going to be deported somewhere, heaven's sake. Anyway, uh, back in April of this year, the High Court heard arguments against the case from the National Justice Project, instructing counsel, uh, solicitor and Kamala Rory uh, woman uh, Karina Hawtrey. We were proud to represent the native National Native Title Council to ensure that the views of a First Nations representative body were taken into account in this significant High Court case. We welcome the news that the case has been discontinued and that the new federal government is no longer seeking to overturn the precedent in love versus Tom's. That case was an important step forward in recognition of the unique legal position of Australian and Torres Strait Islander people and their enduring connection to the country. Well, that's a good piece of news, I'll have to say. Uh, Now, getting to Richard Boyle, uh, his trial began last week. Um, Get Up has uh, put out a whistleblower video to encourage people to uh, understand the things that are on issue when it comes to whistleblowers uh, for people like Richard Boyle and David McBride. So let's have a listen. 161 years in jail. That's how long one man is currently facing for speaking out against wrongdoing. And he's not alone. This is the very real and scary fate facing whistleblowers in Australia. But 
What is a whistleblower? And why does our democracy depend on them? First thing to note is nobody sets out to be a whistleblower. Most of the time, whistleblowers are everyday people, a nurse, a public servant, a bank teller, who sees something that they think is wrong. Maybe they stumble across some files, they're asked to do something that they disagree with, or they see something that triggers alarm bells. And like you or I would do, they report it. But what happens when nothing is done? What happens when their workplace doesn't want to change? That's when that person has to make a choice. Stay silent or speak out. Speak out like Jeffrey Wigand, who helped expose big tobacco companies for lying about the harms of smoking. Nicotine is not addictive. Clearly misstated what they commonly knew as language within the company. Like veteran Avon Hudson, who exposed British nuclear weapons testing in Australia that had devastating consequences on First Nation communities and the servicemen who had unknowingly been exposed to radiation in Maralinga. There. There's a picture of Taranaki. Make no mistake, it was a very big bomb. Whistleblowers are real-life heroes. Both of these people's actions saved countless lives. Across the world, whistleblowers are celebrated. We are in the nicotine delivery business. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence. People are dying, Scott. What I'm about to tell you, it involves something very large. They're the heroes in some of our favorite films and grace the cover of magazines. But here in this country, there's been a war waged against them aimed at keeping them silent. The Morrison government spent $6 million trying to throw just four whistleblowers in prison. $6 million for four people. Two of them are still being prosecuted by the Australian government today. Their names are Richard Boyle and David McBride. So let's get into their cases a little bit. Richard Boyle worked for the Australian Tax Office. He became a whistleblower in 2017 when he exposed aggressive and unethical debt recovery measures used by the ATO. Think robo-debt, but against small businesses. Boyle's allegations included that the ATO staff were told to seize money out of bank accounts without the owner's knowledge. That is massive. He first raised his concerns internally, but a senior investigator completely dismissed them, and the ATO instead offered Boyle a payout in exchange for, you guessed it, his silence. He rejected the payout and went public with the claims. Boyle's revelations were published in a joint investigation between The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, and the ABC's Four Corners. But despite it leading to internal reform and policy reviews, Boyle now faces 24 charges with up to 161 years in prison, all for refusing to stay silent. And it's taken its toll. I feel like I almost died from the stress. I feel like they almost killed me or they were trying to kill me from stress. Now let's get into David McBride's story. McBride is a former Australian defence lawyer turned whistleblower. He put everything on the line to expose alleged war crimes by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. He was the key source behind the ABC's investigation, The Afghan Files, in 2017, with McBride's revelations leading to an investigation and the Brederen Report, which found evidence of allegations of unlawful killings. 
But despite this, the first person to be charged in relation to these crimes is not the perpetrators, but the man who exposed them, David McBride. Now McBride is awaiting trial and faces decades in prison, all for speaking out. These criminal prosecutions against whistleblowers are just the tip of the iceberg. The laws and structures in place meant to protect these people are wholly inadequate, as these trials show. Whistleblower protections in Australia need urgent reform. But there is hope. Today I have discontinued the prosecution of Mr Bernard Kaliri under Section 71 of the Judiciary Act 1903. Just two months after taking office, the new Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, ordered the charges against whistleblower witness Kay's lawyer, Bernard Kaleri, to be dropped. It's a massive step for press freedom, for our democracy, and for Kaleri and his family. But it's not enough. No government can stand and say that they support whistleblowers whilst they are engaged in the prosecution of whistleblowers. The Attorney General needs to act now to drop the prosecutions against Richard Boyle and David McBride. And all Dreyfus needs to do is sign a letter. Right now, we need to raise the profile of these everyday people who chose to risk everything for the public's right to know, for our right to know. They risked everything for us, and now it's time to repay the favour. Will you join the fight to protect whistleblowers? You're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, and we've got Catherine Kelly from the Alliance Against Political Prosecutions, Persecutions, or Prosecutions? Prosecutions. Yeah, yeah. You, you, were, you were down outside the uh, court at a rally for Richard Boyle in Adelaide uh, just the other day. So the proceedings have begun. Well, no, actually they haven't. Um, Richard Boyle tested positive for COVID and his whole defence team tested positive for COVID on Monday. His uh, hearing was due to start on Tuesdays, but it didn't start because obviously they were sick. But uh, we went ahead with the rally outside the courts just in Victoria Square there on Tuesday morning. And there was a good crowd there, or you know, 40 to 50 people, which was good for a fairly short notice uh, rally. And Rex, uh, former Senator Rex Patrick spoke, Human Rights Legal Centre senior lawyer Kieran Pender spoke, um, Richard Searle, a professor from the university, spoke, um, somebody from the union and CPSU spoke. Um, and I spoke, and uh, Helen, uh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name, I don't, don't know her, um, another person spoke from Human Project. So it was uh, pretty good, really. We had banners and uh, placards there, so it was obvious what we were there for. So that was a, a good start. I mean, we had been protesting about his uh, prosecution for some years, along with um, Bernard Cleary's and David McBride's in Canberra, but I think this is the first rally for him in Adelaide. Ah, yes. So the interesting thing about people like Richard Boyle and David McBride and, of course, uh, uh, Bernard Kaliri is that they are people who have, over their uh, working life, been quite successful and uh, 
they conform to the systems that they've all worked in because they actually respect them. That that would be a fair statement, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I mean, Bernard Cleary was a well-respected lawyer. He was he was recommended to witness Kay uh, by the by the security services um, when witness Kay needed a lawyer because of his um, actions about East Timor, and you know ATO. Richard Boyle, a you know, obviously a serious uh, public servant there, and Major uh, David McBride had two tours of service in Afghanistan. Um, yes, all very uh, well respected people. So they actually, in both of their stories, they followed procedure to in order to alert the system that there were problems. Yes, um, Richard Boyle and David McBride both made complaints internally, uh, quite a number of complaints, and um, uh, Richard Boyle went to the Inspector General of uh, Taxation or, um, and uh, also uh, before he went to the media. So he followed all the correct procedures, as did David McBride, uh, David McBride, I think, wrote to a number of politicians as well as going um, to the Inspector General of Defence and uh, before he went to the media as well. So the, And there was a... Um, I think this came after uh, Richard Boyle had been sacked, probably, but there was an investigation, a parliamentary investigation into Richard's uh, complaints about the severe debt recovery practices and that parliamentary inquiry found that the investigation into his complaints was very superficial. And that was when uh, they dropped the number of charges to from 66 charges. Imagine 66 charges for revealing information about bad debt recovery practices. It's outrageous. Anyway, they dropped the charges, 66 charges, to 24 counts, which is still a huge number of counts against him. So, and the, the you know the um, jail service uh, prison time that they are facing is incredibly long. Uh, it's it's so outrageous. I, I get lost for words because they shouldn't be being prosecuted at all. At all. Uh, just as an aside, uh, one of my relatives was uh, under that. Uh, uh, they they felt the brunt of um, the ATO's approach to small business, and they actually emigrated because they found they were so insulted by the country's approach to them. Right. Yes, and there was somebody else at the rally too who had been badly affected by these practices. So, I mean, yeah, they hadn't yeah. done anything. You know, like it was just uh, like a, shark, a white pointer shark uh, attacking their credibility and their livelihood. Yeah. Mm. It's quite yes, extraordinary. Yes, it is extraordinary. Um, I'm not sure why. So, I mean, it's just that people uh, people do think that Richard Boyle is a hero. <laughs> Yeah, 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 he is a hero, both of them are heroes. And, um, um, sorry, I've lost my Oh, no, no, what I, I was, what I was really getting at was, what I was thinking about was uh, the politicisation of uh, the public service 
the um, being lent on by power elites who who don't want the inconvenient truth. It's one of the reasons for why the public service has a system and a structure, but it was being under it's being undermined, isn't it? And uh, it, you must be calling for better whistleblower legislation, just as the Get Up video talks about. Yes, we certainly are calling for better public interest disclosure uh, act legislation that needs to be reformed. It's apparently um, just unable to protect people who need that protection. And Dreyfus has said that he won't drop these charges for these two people because they're not like they're not exceptional and unusual like the Cleary one was. But if two unjust um, prosecutions aren't exceptional and uh, unusual, well, they bloody well should be. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, do you have so, any idea, I mean, it's probably beyond your remit, but do you have any idea of uh, the approach that the defence teams might be going down? Uh, no, I don't. I haven't uh, talked to the defence teams at all, so I'm not privy to that. No, yeah. well, it'll be interesting to see uh, if, you know, if it does go to court and they have to go through the uh, the issues that are involved um, mm. because, as with all activism, uh, the uh, court case quite often is the place where all the murky details are exposed because the court only deals in data, give us, only give us the facts sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, the, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions is supposedly independent and responsible for the prosecutions, for them going ahead. And uh, she, that's a she at the moment, uh, Sarah McMahon. No, sorry, that's not right. But um, Anyway, she can uh, reconsider the uh, prosecutions at any time. But we have written to her asking her to do that, but uh, she says that they're just in the public interest but hasn't explained what that public interest is in them going ahead. So um, whether the public interest, they consider the public interest is in deterring other whistleblowers, that seems to be the only argument that I can think of. Oh, actually, I can think of another. They might actually want to expose the previous government's uh, heavy-handed approach. Well, that's right. But uh, the prosecutions were begun under the... under the previous government. Well, the whole regime at the ATO was instituted. It was, it's very similar to the attacks on uh, pensioners uh, with the um, robo-debt, uh, yes. uh, the same sort of approach, a mindset. Yep, yep, and that's been... Uh, there's a uh, Royal Commission happening into that, isn't there? Yeah. The robo-debt. Yes. I, I mean, that was a systemic... Uh, ideological approach by, I'd have to say, I think, an incompetent government. Mm. Yes. Well, they certainly were, and they've done a lot of damage. Um, and they just attacked the, uh, you know, the most vulnerable in our society, whether it's people being tossed over the, off the um, 
disability support or, you know, the robo-debt or these cases and and so many other things, services that they cut back for legal aid, uh, that sort of thing. Yes, they did a hell of a lot of damage. Yeah, but but the most interesting thing about the whistleblowers in this particular case, um, Richard Boyle and David McBride, maybe this is a common thing, but these two people are definitely well-respected, upstanding members of um, at least the middle class, you'd have to say. Yes, that's right. So this is a, a slightly different attack, but yes, obviously trying to hide things that uh, were going wrong in the public service or in the military. Uh, well, certainly... well, the thing about it is if, if, they, if the prosecutions are successful, uh, should Australians be worried about their democracy? Well, we have to be, I think, if this becomes the norm. Um, people need to be able to speak out about what's wrong. I mean, why should you be prosecuted for speaking out about deficiencies in the public administration or in the military? Um, it doesn't uh, bode well for our democracy if that's the way things are going because people will be too scared and they'll be frightened um, and uh, we won't hear about them. So it is really important that these two uh, cases, these two prosecutions be discontinued and, and that the whole thing gets turned around, that whistle about blowers be encouraged, not discouraged. In America, I think in some places they... Um, pay whistleblowers when they've uh, you know, given information about bad practices or illegal goings-on. Who pays them? Uh, well, I think the state, but I'd have to go into that in more detail. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there you go. And Alliance Against Political Prosecutions is uh, going ahead, of course, and uh, will keep us informed of what happens with Richard Boyle. Who would have thought that COVID would have had a silver lining? <laughs> Sorry, what was the silver lining there? Well, they couldn't take them to court. They had to wait until they oh, were all my... well, at least for 14 days or seven yes, days well, or whatever. I think, I think um, Richard was quite looking forward to giving his public interest dif- disclosure defence there because that's the chance. If that went ahead and they were found that the public interest disclosure was justified, that, that would have been the end of it. Oh, cool. Okay. But, uh, there's a hearing next Friday at 2.15, which is just a directions hearing, uh, I understand. Um, but his public interest disclosure has been put back to October now. Oh, my so goodness. So, no, it's wearisome, isn't it? Another huge delay. And these yeah. things have been pushed out as part of a you know, punishment by process um, for all of them. They've been going on for years and really, without getting anywhere, really. Oh, yeah, it's terrible, isn't yeah. it? Okay. Mm. Uh, what do you? Uh, how can listeners uh, involve themselves in this process? Well, if they can uh, find out more about it, Sydney criminal lawyers Paul Gregoire often has very good articles about uh, this, and he had one uh, just a week ago or something. Um, uh, Whistleblower Richard Boyle's public interest defence hearing set. Just to, to read that sort of thing, it gives a whole history of Richard's case. And uh, then, you know, you could write to uh, Dreyfus, Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus, and ask him to drop the prosecutions or write letters to the paper or or go and see your own MP and ask them to ask Mark Dreyfus to drop the prosecutions. 
So there's quite a bit you can do, or you can keep up. They could keep up to date um, with our website on what's going on, which is aapp.ipan.org.au. Cool. Thanks very much, Catherine. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. And you with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And uh, we're going to go to Sydney with uh, Block Aid Australia. I talked to Mark Davis, who's the lawyer who's handling the cases. Uh, he gives us an update and, and an appraisal of the uh, situation that uh, ensured in Sydney during the events of Block Aid Australia. You've uh, been dealing with the Block Aid Australia legal issues after the blockade in Sydney and I was wondering if you could give us some information about uh, how things have been working out. Oh well slowly uh, to date but there's a lot of cases. We've got um, we've got 10 people who were arrested at Colo which is where the protesters were camping on the outskirts of Sydney, totally legally camping I might add, when uh, they were descended or they rather discovered a surveillance team hiding in the bushes, uh, filming them. Uh, we're not satisfied yet that that, that team had a proper uh, 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 warrants to do so. But nevertheless, uh, the protesters in surrounded these intruders, as I, I think they were certainly justified in doing. And uh, But they've been since charged with uh, assault police for surrounding those officers who didn't say they were police officers. Uh, and and a fray, uh, which is a very serious charge, 10 years jail. All of those 10 were kept uh, in custody uh, at least for one night. Some of them, I think, approached the second night. Uh, uh, that's, they're going to be very messy and, uh, and long uh, cases. We've entered pleas for them. That's as much as we've got. We're waiting for police evidence. Uh, so they are very serious charges. They're five years jail, so police. 10 years jail, um, a fray. Um, all, all I can say is I'm fairly confident we can beat those charges if we get a fair hearing. Um, the other matters, there's some 25 uh, or 22 that we're handling. I think there's about another four handled by other people who protested on the streets of Sydney and are facing the new legislation in New South Wales, which makes it an offence to be on a road in Sydney, um, or certain roads in Sydney, uh, uh, of two years jail. 
it's unique. There's nothing like it in Australia. There's nothing like it in the darkest days of uh, the, the Jockey Peterson era that we had a road offence, which is a, a mere traffic offence, uh, uh, making you vulnerable to two years in jail. So we're acting for 22 people who are possibly facing two years in jail for daring to make a, what turned out to be a fairly non-intrusive protest on the streets of Sydney uh, against uh, or, or, or to highlight uh, uh, climate change. If we go back to Cola, are you uh, dealing with the case of Tim and Max who were actually gathered up and put into jail for an extended period of time? Yes, yes, uh, actually for both of them. Um, they were denied uh, bail. It, incredibly, incredibly, in my view. Mind you, it's not difficult uh, to uh, to get people detained in a bail setting because you're not allowed to argue uh, the facts. The magistrate is given the facts and they have to accept them. They're given the facts by the police. And on the facts given to them by police, Max and, and uh, Tim apparently participated in this assault upon police and, uh, and this affray. So, as I say, they're very serious charges. So the magistrate, quite well, uh, rightly, I suppose, went, well, these are very serious charges. And the police were opposing their release. These are dangerous men. They're part of this evil blockade Australia, you know, causing mayhem or threatening mayhem uh, to Sydney and now to the Salter Police. Well, we believe the evidence, the actual evidence on the Salt Police is extremely poor, and yet these poor guys had to sit in jail for uh, three weeks because they were denied bail initially before we could get back to court and present some of the uh, uh, evidence that has come to light since then, which would suggest that the offences were not so serious at all. Now, the point of that being, if if they are convicted of those offences, which I, I uh, believe there's a poor chance of them being convicted, they would probably not be sentenced to jail. That is, it would be at the very lower end of that offence. So if they're not to be sentenced to jail, how can you keep them in jail for uh, six months before their matter would be heard? And, and obviously the court agreed with us and they were released. But both of them, young guys, no criminal record, no history of violence, just nice, ordinary people sitting in civil water jail for three weeks because a surveillance team crept up on them on private property in the bush and they asked, had the temerity to ask who they were and then tried to stop them getting into their car to escape. I don't know if you can comment on this, but is this a, a an extremely worrying development that the police are being used as a political weapon, it would appear? Well, a political weapon or, or not, there's certainly something very intense about the policing. Now, obviously, police there's laws okay there's a new law i think it's a, an offensive law i think it's an absurd law but it's a law so the police are entitled to or not entitled they're in fact obliged to investigate any breaches of that law that's well it's not the police fault is it it's the it's the politicians fault to bring in something that was a 400 dollars fine previously that is to obstruct traffic was a 400 dollars fine now it's two years jail obstruct traffic two years jail so all right that's on the police books. But but uh, police have certain discretions as to what they charge and how they charge. Now, in this case, they've set up a strike force 
which is a dedicated police unit, a strike force against Blockade Australia and these protesters. Strike forces were initially set up for, you know, biking gangs running, you know, heroin, heroin importation. So when you have a strike force, it's a, it's a group with in, enhanced powers and enhanced resources, or in fact, almost limitless resources. They have dedicated around-the-clock teams uh, who are to surveil and uh, and to prosecute more or less at any opportunity for any offence. That's how you deal with uh, bikies. You want to get bikies out of your town, you set up a strike force. You, you follow them 24 hours. You... Uh, book them every, you know, wrong left turn, every failed, uh, you know, uh, indicator light. You just keep, you keep harassing them. You keep, you keep bringing them to court, and then if they do a major offence, obviously you you get them for that as well. But it's not strike forces really aren't about major offences. They're about harassing and intimidating criminals. Well, in this case, they're harassing and intimidating, and in my view, over policing environmentalists who have committed no uh, uh, offence against the person who has not uh, damaged any property. Uh, undoubtedly, I guess they're trying to be inconvenient. They're trying to create inconvenience, undoubtedly. I mean, they're saying they are. But uh, does that mean you, 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 you have a strike force that is there to you know, make their life not just miserable, but bring them within the criminal justice system? I think it's improper. It's interesting, too, that uh, in the Kola incident, for example, uh, it was noted by Blockade Australia or the people there that the police actually broke all the windows of all the cars, even the ones they could actually access because they had keys. So that sort of gives you the impression that the police themselves were acting illegally. Well, well, illegally or not, we'll see. I guess there may be civil actions that come out of that. But what, what? So what's happened is there's been, so let's say there's uh, there's thirty or forty people that are camping at Colo, which is a you know rural thing along the river outside of Sydney. When the uh, they, they 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 come in to rescue, they say rescue their surveillance team. Now, the incident was well and truly over when they uh, after that, and they they arrested ten people. Uh, the others were told to leave the property. They then went in and basically pulled all the tents apart. And they, correctly, they, they, they smashed the windows of the cars. Now, what are they looking for, right? They've, they've, they've taken everybody's mobile phones. Now, you normally do this when you're after forensic evidence. There's a drug bus, for instance. Okay, you pull apart the, the panels of the car. What are you searching for? When, when what you're saying is there's been an assault upon police or, or police operations have been uh, uh, interfered with, they say, what are you searching for when you're pulling down tents of people who weren't haven't been charged, when you're breaking into the cars of people who haven't been charged? Well, you might be able to do it under the police regulations. They're given pretty extreme powers now, almost limitless powers to do such things. But what's the forensic purpose? Why are you doing it other than to create you know, distress and, and inconvenience. Uh, the, the people, all, all those phones, all those computers taken, I mean, no one gets them back. You know, oh, you'll get them back at the end of the prosecution. Well, what, what are you hoping to find? This is a, a very contained event. It's not it's not a pre-planned event that might be, there might be evidence of such, you know, on phones or computers, you know, they're planning this operation. Uh, in my mind, it's absurd and it's, and it's doing nothing but 
trying to aggravate and inconvenience, and it is succeeding. Yeah, and limit uh, effectiveness. The um, Also, the side issue to this, of course, is that it diverts attention from the fact that we're dealing with a climate emergency and uh, also that uh, Australia potentially should really consider having a, a charter of... Um, of uh, rights. Well, I, I think I disagree with you on the first thing. Ironically, it's not diverting uh, diverting attention from a uh, climate emergency. I think, ironically, it's actually bringing attention to the climate emergency. Uh, you know, um, uh, perhaps the uh, Blockade Australia has got more publicity than it could ever have dreamt at, I mean, at the cost, personal cost of some of those people. But... Uh, uh, if it's to sort of suppress information about Blockade Australia, I think it's been a complete uh, uh, failure. Um, more attention than, than would have been given to what was not a particularly impactful protest through the streets of Sydney. Um, as to your second point, um, well, yes, that's a bigger question. Australians, uh, I think, are very vulnerable on the question of rights. We're, we're, we're a strange um, position for most liberal democracies. America has a constitution which protects their rights, and we're all familiar with it. In fact, most of us, uh, a lot of my clients think it applies here. We all have this idea that we have a right to silence and a right to not be searched, and you know, uh, 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 various rights that we all think we have, but as it turns out, we don't have them. But America has a constitution. The, the British have. Um, uh, very elaborate common law rights that are, that are protected by just by the conventions of English law. We used to have them. We've abandoned them at great haste. Uh, I don't know what, what protections Australians do have anymore. I think we've got very few actual protections. I mean, we are a liberal democracy, so we have certain conventions that protect us, but those conventions, I think, are rapidly uh, disappearing, and there's not much you can do about it. Not much to stop it. There's not not many courts you can get into to say this is an infringement of some right when there's some little two-bit piece of legislation that was passed at midnight, you know, last week. That's that's what applies. That's what applies. Whatever the parliament, um, you know, rushes through in a moment of anger or you know a, a thought bubble. Uh, our, our statute books are full of thought bubbles now. Whatever, you know, whatever. Uh, the shock jocks are upset about that week. It turns into legislation pretty quickly these days, and that's what we're facing with. That's absolutely what we're facing with this this uh, very poorly thought out uh, road legislation. Mm, yeah, it's pretty pretty. Uh, it's interesting because uh, you're right. People have this idea that there's a certain level of natural justice that is in uh, existent, but uh, that's not what you can take to court. Well, you can't take it to court. You used to have to take it to court. I mean, like the Evidence Act, you know, was, was based purely on the common law, then common law being, um, you know, principles, broad principles of, of, of law and, uh, and that were defined by the courts, by the precedent of different court judgments, you know. Well, now, since they've sort of codified the Evidence Act, that is, just put it into one big book, well, it's very easy to change the book. It used to be very hard to change principles rapidly, right? It would take a number of major court decisions and some sort of rule of evidence would change over time. Now, it's a, it's a flick of a finger and some angry new 
you know, local MP wants something, and now, now it's in the Evidence Act, or now it's in a new piece of legislation. Uh, uh, do, do, do open up the Evidence Act one day, open up the Criminal Code. I mean, just, they just keep adding. It, 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 it never stops. They keep adding. And, and when I say adding, what they keep doing is removing what was once defences to accusations by the state or by police. You know, we used to have uh, defences. Well, every time there's a defence raised, now they're whipping into Parliament and taking the defence away. So I, I find it horrifying. Yeah, it is horrifying. The uh, Blockade Australia people who are um, waiting for their cases, and it could take ages, I presume, because that's the nature of the beast, uh, are they banned from uh, things? Are there bans on them? Yeah, yeah, very severe restrictions. So we're hoping to, you know, chip away at these. But but to get them out of police custody, because they were all denied police bail. Police arrest people all the time, but then they 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 charge you. They they tag you. Well, you've got to be in court in a month's time, and here's the paperwork. They don't often say we're going to detain you, and we believe you should be tamed, detained permanently, which is what they do with all of them. They denied them police bail. They kept them in jail all day and all night and begrudgingly got them to court the next day. And then at court, they were going to oppose their release, saying they should be kept in jail. These people are so bad. They should be kept in jail until their matter can be heard. If you enter a not guilty plea, your matter's not going to be heard for six months. They should be kept in jail. There's the New South Wales Police Force asking for this. Well, so... Each of them then had to apply for bail or accept police bail. So the conditions on all of them are as high as I've ever seen. They're the type of conditions you might expect, you know, if you were to release a repeat sex offender, uh, uh, if you're not going to incarcerate them, but you're going to release them. It's the sort of conditions you put on them. That is, some of them had complete home arrest. Complete home arrest. For what? What did they do? Oh, they were going to block a block a slow down some traffic. You know? Others have curfews. All of them, or almost all of them, had these non-association orders, which again are unusual things. I mean, even I mean, I, I do a lot of criminal stuff. You know, uh, uh, I've got major drug dealers who don't get non-association orders on their bail. Bail is when you're, you know, you're maintaining your innocence or generally maintaining your innocence. Or, you're entitled to be seen that way. The bail is meant to just ensure you come to court. Non-associations, 22, 25 non-associations. Well, that's, for most of us, that's all of our friends. And it certainly is the case with these protesters. They're, they're friends. You know, they're lovers of some of them. You're non-association. Non-associ- you can't talk. You can't see each other. You can't email. You can't text. You can't, you know, like... And if you do, you'll have breached bail, of course, meaning we'll come and grab you again and put you back in the cells and we'll uh, say that you should be kept in prison. Um, so non-association orders, limitations on... Uh, you can't use encrypted devices. That, that is, you can't use any messaging service. You're, you're limited to one phone uh, uh, and the police have that number and have the code of the phone. Um, uh, police can come to your house up to... Some, some people, up to seven, uh, one, one guy had up to up to six visits a day to your home to check you there. Uh, um, extreme, right? And, and we also know that a good number of them are being, the ones that aren't under curfew, uh, are being surveilled. That is, 
I mean, physically surveilled, I mean, with, with undercover um, police following them around. They're, some of them are banned from New South Wales. I mean, who do you ban from the state? They're like, like I mean, you'd have to be a pretty serious criminal to be banned from the state. But, you know, that, uh, uh, what, nine of them are banned from New South Wales. Nearly all of them are banned from the, from the city of Sydney. Um, you know, it's... Well, there's a huge amount of money going into the police in order to uh, finance this. Uh, Obviously, it makes it look like the fossil fuel, that the government is in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry. (laughs) Well, who knows? But but there's clearly a... It would be fair to assume there is a political... I mean, people often say, and I don't share it, right? I don't believe, I certainly don't believe the courts are in anyone's pockets. We, fortunately, we have a very independent courts. I think police overall just get a, get on with their job and do their job. But when you ha- when it comes to resources, that's a political decision, right? It's not random that suddenly one unit looking at a group of environmental protesters are given the resources of you know probably ten police stations. That's a political decision. So someone is saying, spend whatever you need to spend, uh, employ whoever you need to employ, employ every device you possibly can. That's uh, that's not just local cops or any level of, of of a police command going. Oh, this is what we'll spend our money on now. I mean, that has a tint, a flavour to it that I find objectionable. Uh, it's clearly an allocation of resources. And and in a state like uh, a city like Sydney, which has some pretty serious crime going on in it, uh, I would think it's questionable as to whether it's a good uh, use of those resources. No, not to mention the health issues and the pay, pay, public pay disputes that are going on at the moment. Well, I guess it's not their their business, but you know, for for a police department or a police for a police force, it, no, it's I got mean, limited resources. How does, yeah, yeah. How, I mean, how does it spend it? The government, the government. Um, thank yeah, you very yeah, much yeah. for for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. No worries. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on the 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when amid a declining economic outlook, well, what else would we expect? It's normal. A new socialist government inherits the mess, then goes about putting capitalism back on its feet. So the caring business class and hayseed and sheep shit coalition lots can come back and stuff it up again. Thank goodness at least the Socialist Party never considers there might be a better cure than reviving the capitalist patient. Amid all that, there couldn't be a worse time to unleash anarchy and thuggery against those most esteemed of caring business class practitioners, the developers and construction giants whose sole concern is the good of the community, in putting a roof over people's heads and over workers' workplace heads. The very workers who repay them with such disdain. Why, no less a brilliant incisive legal mind as caring business class party shadow caring business class relations guru Michaelia Kosh, the workers, predicted the end of the world as we know it. They will do anything to appease the CFWMEU and in doing so will put Troublawazi's economic recovery at risk. That is the recovery that big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital says is going downhill already. A downhill recovery. 
Why, Jim said real wages are at a 12-year low, would not reach the peak of 2020 for eons, which in itself was a peak that lazy avaricious workers somehow missed, but it does show just how difficult it is to increase real wages because caring employers have had nothing else on their minds for years. And it exposes the fallacy of a fiscally ignorant electorate throwing out the coalition lot. Because back in his March budget, a mere four to five months ago, then big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs, now Fried himself, promised workers could expect their pay packets to begin increasing at the fastest rate in decades within months. Like about after the election, like about now. So what a mistake throwing them out. Hasn't the socialist lot got a lot to answer for? And instead of bringing us Josh's workers' utopia, they're pouring coal onto the industrial fire by getting rid of the smash the evil construction union's jackboots con mission, whose chief inquisitor displayed his concern for lazy avaricious workers by decrying the impact of this on workers on the workers who are employed to smash the evil construction workers, showing what a compassionate inquisitor he is. The utter disaster summed up by the Master Builders Profits Association, a good union. The all-being-oozy government is abandoning the construction industry. There, that says it all. The thuggery runs to such evil as not respecting the God-given right of workers not to join a union, wanting union stickers on their helmets and uniforms, deflying a union flag, and worse of all, carrying on about safety issues on the job, crippling costs for their caring employers, or, as the master builder's profits explained, everyone knows it's a dangerous industry, but they won't accept that. They're making it even more dangerous for caring employers, uh, but, but they do take the risks. Caring employers take all the real risks. The only slight sliver of light, and we can only hope, the caring business class minister Tony Bark radicalism said of the upcoming government summit between caring employers and evil unions that the boot, better off overall test, could be on the table, that important caring business class relations principle that for workers to be better off, they must become worse off. Now, we know stabbing in the back is an important element of parliamentary democracy, and it's all very well when they do it to each other, but when the poor victim is the caring business class, it shows to what depths the socialist government will sink. See, the caring business class government had a fail-safe plan to guarantee the bloated, inefficient public sector NBN Network Co. benefited from the efficiency of the private sector by turning the cash cow over to the private sector, but the timing had to be perfect. Like when the public purse had spent trillions setting the NBN up to the point where it would start turning over a neat little profit. Then the time would be right to hand the inefficient to the efficient. And now that plan has been cruelly thwarted. The new government says it won't privatise it. Talk about ratting on the caring business class. What a waste. All those lovely, lovely profits ending up in the public coffers. Don't they care about this country? The government's done its role. It's funded the whole thing. Now it's time to step back and let market forces play their monopolistic role. 
The only slight ray of light is that the announcement said the government will retain NBN Co in public hands for the foreseeable future. There's a faint hope there, I suppose. And it's not like socialist governments haven't been active in privatising public assets for the common good and then forking out trillions whenever they hold their hand out like the airline which used to be our airline. The Indo-Pacific's train killer good guys got together this week to hear the US of the UN of the US of the world's number one train killer. Well, number two, if we count the commander-in-chief, General Mark My Words Milley warned that the bad guy, evil, evil China, wants to bully or dominate the Indo-Pacific, citing aggressive evil threats to US of and true blue Aussie train killer floating and flying merchandise of death. Uh, where is this aggression taking place, Mark My Words? In the South China Sea, clearly an area in which the U.S. of has responsibility to protect the peace. My God, yes, what aggression. By the way, how many evil Chinese train killer vessels or jets have been sailing or flying off the U.S. of Californian or Atlantic East Coast? Perish the thought. If they did, we would have to take immediate action to sink them, shoot them down, eliminate them. The, the peace-loving U.S. of could not ignore such blatant aggression in our sovereign waters. Uh, yes, good on yeah, but how, how far do your sovereign waters go? In the interests of peace, we limit our sovereign control to the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian and all other waterways. E evil China and evil Russia are free to navigate everywhere else. Uh, so presumably in their own rivers and lakes. As long as they do so in a non-aggressive manner and don't force the peace-loving U.S. of to take steps in the interest of that peace. Uh, thank you, Mark, my words. Make sure you let people know how evil, evil China is, or you'll be hearing from me. Oh, I will, I will. Have a good day, or else. Over in the US, Ob, scientists are warning of a huge increase in shark numbers along the East Coast, due, they believe, to climate change, if there is such a thing, and conservation protection measures. But as many sharks as there may be swimming in the East Coast waters, they would be nothing compared to the sharks swimming in the Wall Street and Washington and numerous other caring business class waters. On climate change, if there is, big supremo Anthony Albinguzi was sticking by his commitment to a 43% emissions reduction by 2030 target. Uh, so how will you achieve these cuts, Anthony? Uh, we're passing legislation. Uh, yes, yes, but how will you then achieve the target? I just told you we're passing legislation. But Anthony refused to ex include an end to new coal and gas extraction. Because uh, that would be a disaster for the economy. Uh, but, but, but what about the disaster for the environment, for the climate, for the planet and its inhabitants? Don't you listen? I said we're passing legislation. Look, you're confusing two issues that are totally unrelated. Emission reduction on the one hand and more coal and gas on the other. So it's looking promising. Legislation with no detail and more coal and gas. That should work wonders and satisfy the millions who voted for action on climate change, if there is. 
caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer declared abolishing the smash the evil union's jackboots con mission showed the socialist party was a captive of the evil unions. And also he would never support the 43% emission reduction target because that would be a disaster for all of us and especially the all of us in the caring business class. And he is not happy about giving indigenous true blue Aussies some sort of voice. They've gone, you know, like more than 230 years without, like, you know, any sort of sale recognition. So, like, if it ain't, you know, broke. And anyway, the police and the courts are in contact with them all the, you know, like, time. And I thought... Imagine what he'd be like if we didn't now have the new, caring, soft, warm, fuzzy Pete. Don't know if you watched the last night of the proms on telly Wednesday, last year's proms, the first in three years with an audience, but if you did or didn't, doesn't change this, I'm not sure why I asked that, but top marks to the troubler was he tenor Stuart Skelton, who almost managed, no one could totally manage, but almost managed to make I still call Australia home sound decent rather than the sentimental mawkish crap that it is. The perfect timing of the week award, two headlines same day. The buy now, pay later party is over. And the second, after pay founders reap 264 million payday. Pay now, buy later. For their perfect timing, the party's just starting while most of their ex-customers are having a little bit of trouble with the pay-later bit. But they don't have to worry about that anymore. And as a private equity mob take over the Crook Casino from Jamie Puker after exposés of just how crook it is, Steve McCann get rich quick after just over a year in the job running the joint, walked away with a $9 million payday. Nice work if you can get it. But of course, if he were a punter, he'd be banned for the unsocial crime of winning, while the new owners said they hope their luck changes. <laughs> what is there to change? They've bought a private mint. Finally, on Crooks, a couple of weeks ago, we were addressed a long-term oversight by the week that was, providing a financial report. We reported that some shares that went up today will probably go down tomorrow, and some shares that went down today will probably go up tomorrow. We admitted our oversight, but I refuse to cop the criticism from the thousands of calls we haven't received that we don't match the Lord Rupert a whopping sin in reporting gang warfare and gang killings and criminal dynasties, criminal celebrities to whom they love to give air. In other words, we don't report on gangs of crooks. Rubbish. We comment every week about the caring business class. Good morning. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. And you're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. Don, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Annie, and good day to all of your listeners. I hope you're all well and uh, girding the loins for the next month and five years or whatever it's going to be of in, 
intense struggle around our living standards. Well, apparently we're not in a class war. We're not in a class war. The the wolves don't eat lambs. No, no, no. And that, you know, Kevin should not be talking that class war language. It only encourages us. (laughs) You've been doing some uh, interesting work around... uh, age pensions relationship to average total male earnings. You might uh, like to explain a little bit to our listeners. Yes, well, this is one really important part of um, an overall working class struggle around living standards at the moment. And uh, we really haven't finished the work yet, but um, what we're trying to do is understand why it is that more and more pensioners are drifting closer or onto the poverty line and uh, uh, what, we're, what we're discovering is that, firstly, that uh, not many pensioners themselves understand how the twice-a-year adjustment to the pension occurs, how that's all worked out. That's the first thing. So it's something that is done to them, and um, it's done to them by essentially by um, uh, bureaucrats in Services Australia who work it out. Um, and the second thing we're finding is that there are some questions worth asking about how it is worked out, about whether there should be an increase in the pension, the age pension, and if so, how much. Um, now, what the system boils down to is this, is that uh, the law requires that there be a consideration of an increase in the pension twice per year in March and September. And the Services Australia bureaucrats are charged with using information provided by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And they have to take into account two measures of inflation relative to a benchmark of male total average weekly earnings. And that's the scheme that is used. Now, and that allegedly delivers the decision, A, firstly, will there be an increase in the pension? And in just about all six monthly periods in recent times, that's been the case. There's one exception back in September of 2020. Um, But the interesting thing about all this is that uh, it's the average total male earnings. And, of course, the average total male earnings have been assaulted by the increasing nature a change of work uh, which is more precarious and more casualised. This has yeah. an effect, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. You see, there are three or four measures of uh, weekly earnings, uh, as I think probably many of your listeners already know, and um, the one that they select is the lowest, and male total average weekly earnings is the uh, is includes... Uh, precarious workers who are in temporary work, in and out of work, uh, and includes, of course, junior workers on junior rates of pay. And that means that the benchmark, the wages benchmark against which the pension increase is compared is lower. And the interesting thing about that average total male weekly earnings, because it includes all types of workers, uh, is that especially since the Liberal National Party coalition came to power in 2013 is that that has uh, 
increased, not relative to inflation as we know, but it's increased at a much slower rate than the other measures. So although we've had wage stagnation, it's even more severe when when you take into account the whole workforce. And that means that the pension increases will tend to be less relative to general community standards. Goodness, it sounds like a Russian novel. It does, and we're going to have to write it all up in plain language, but that's we're trying to work out exactly how it occurs and uh, because it's, uh, it's probably occurring, uh, we suspect, contrary to the statutory requirements about what should happen uh, with, with the age pension. Yeah, it wasn't the but intention. It wasn't the intention to impoverish pensioners originally. Yeah, well, pensioners who are drifting uh, to the poverty line and especially single pensioners and uh, so we're trying to work that out because you know we're generally pensioners uh, those who are a little bit are generally dissatisfied with the so-called peak bodies because they don't pay consistent and tough enough attention to the situation for age pensioners and uh, so there's a group of us you know, people who are on the pension or are going to be on the pension soon who have been uh, starting to think about this and we'll come back to and tell you a bit more about what we'll work out in the next uh, week or three. Mm, That's fascinating. It it also uh, gives a very strong impression of uh, the actual state of uh, standard of living uh, in the broader community, not just pensioners, I'll have to say. Yes, well, there are uh, parts of the Australian working class, like pensioners, who, uh, you know, are under particular pressure. And uh, of course, the other day, uh, the uh, uh, the new, the updated uh, uh, Productivity Commission uh, annual report on closing the gap for our First Nations people was released, and that's not, you know, that's not good reading. There are a couple of positive things that are happening, but generally speaking, again, uh, there are real living standards problems still confronting uh, our First Nations peoples all across the country. But then there's this... So all that's within the context of a really big struggle about living standards, which has been brought into sharp release, uh, relief, of course, with the Treasurer's statement the uh, the other night. And uh, there's so many angles to that, but I thought the one that was really most interesting for me, um, or perhaps not the most interesting, but one worth thinking about, because it made me start thinking about a couple of old union songs. Um, Annie, you may you may you may remember the song called um, "The Preacher and the Slave." No, 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 no. <laughs> the first verse it goes: "Long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right." But when asked about something to eat, they will answer with voices so sweet. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. I, I actually I actually got the song for you, so we'll go out with that. Utah oh. Phillips. Oh, how well done you. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's great. It's fantastic. What's the, what a fella. Why, why, did, why did my... You know, 
weird thought processes go to that song, which I had thought about. For Breatharians. Time. We're all Breatharians, Don. Yeah, well, there we go. And, and, and the reason is that um, in, the, in the Treasurer's statement, um, he said that there would, prob- there would be no real wage gain until 2024. And that's all based on uh, forecasts from Treasury and the Reserve Bank. So here we have, you know, we're, we're being asked to eat by and by 2024. Because mm. we know mm. that what's going on is that as, uh, as the wage stagnation continues, we do know that people will sacrifice a meal or even a day of meals in order to be able to pay the rent, uh, fill the car with petrol so they can get to and from job interviews. Or yeah, job well, interviews. well, it's not just that. Uh, it's now um, estimated that uh, one in six children in Australia are um, not getting their breakfast, that people yeah. are struggling to actually put food on the table. And I was uh, doing the Concrete Gang the other day and uh, – the uh, the CFMEU have started breakfast clubs again. This is a very interesting development. They used to do this where uh, if you're you're on a building site, it, uh, you become uh, connected to a local school and you put a gold coin donation in it. And what it's doing is to support a breakfast club for the kids coming to school. They've started that up again. Working class organisations. Uh, have already been doing that. There's going to be a lot more of it as well. Uh, and because we've got these examples of excellent effort by small working class groups in a couple of capital cities, uh, well, in several capital cities and regional cities that are providing immediate material support, food and shelter for people who have... Uh, yep. uh, the, the system has uh, discarded. Now, these get, just to get back to these forecasts, you know, the magic years going for workers, the wages are start, going to start to go up in 2023-24. That's the prediction. Well, the prediction is being made by Treasury and Reserve Bank. Now, they've been doing these forecasts on wages for several years, and for all of those years, they have been dramatically overestimating over-forecasting the, uh, an increase in wages. I'm, I'm sort of hoping that uh, with a new mechanic, they might actually be looking, appraising the system, affect the engine effectively rather than optimistically. Well, that means we have to ask ourselves, what has to change in order to, for that happy state of affairs where real wages are rising? Uh, that means they have to be rising uh, above the rate of inflation. Yeah. Uh, well, there are several things that have to happen if that's going to happen in 2023-24. Firstly, uh, Im- immigration would have to rise so there are all, more workers um, in... Uh, oh, immigration must not be allowed to happen. In other words, there has to be... Uh, a, a continuing relative shortage of workers. So the workers, so this is the you know starting point is the labour market itself. If, 
if there is an oversupply of workers, that is high unemployment, and especially if it's associated with high personal debt, the willingness of workers to wage a wages and conditions campaign tends to fall. That's you know, usually the case, although not always. Now, so that's the first thing. But, of course, the intent, one of the intents of this government is to uh, find more workers, and that will include through um, uh, new immigration arrangements. The second thing that has to happen is that organised workers, 15% of the workforce, will have to start demanding higher, including catch-up wages, and actually fighting for them. Now, at one point, that will require change, maybe require change, probably require changes to the industrial relations laws, because right now they're designed to stop that from happening. Third, the third thing that has to happen is we have to get to that happy state of real wages growth again in 2023-24, is that the 85% of the workforce who aren't organised will have to change their mind <laughs> and start getting organised and joining in the struggle to raise them. Now, once again, that will require some sort of change to the law. The Fair Work Act will have to be dramatically changed but we know that the employers are opposed to that. Somehow or other, the elbow gym duo has to get consensus on making dramatic changes to the law at the next summit, the next employment summit that's happening September 1st and 2nd. Is it called a job summit or is it called an employment summit? I think it's called an employment summit. Uh, There you go. Now, that's that's actually an important difference. There's a website for it. Um, at Tre- Treasury's got a web page for it all. That it's now it's just got the basic information about it, which uh, you can you can catch up. Just go to the Treasury.gov.au and you'll follow the link to information about the summit. And what's but the date again? We know about the summit. Uh, wait a second. What's the date? First uh, and second of September. Yeah. Good. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Now, what we know about these tripartite summits is that historically they have diluted whatever Labor's program about workers' rights is about. So whatever the program is going into the election, then the summit dilutes it, makes it weaker. And in any case, Labor's industrial relations program the election did not include the changes that would give the legal base power to workers for effective wages and conditions. In other words, for an effective return to the happy state of real wage growth in 2023-24. And therefore, for that to happen, there has to be another possibility. And that must mean industry and class-based organising in defiance of those rules that currently constrain it. And there's no sign of that at this stage. And my hunch is that there are some union leaders through their membership conferences and so on that are discussing this, but they're waiting to see what does come out at the Employment Summit on September the 1st and 2nd.
Well, that's a fair bit. The um, rhetoric coming out of the uh, nurses and midwives uh, uh, union in New South Wales was fairly uh, um, strong, I'll have to say. They were talking about uh, 7% and uh, uh, fighting at the barricades. Uh, I haven't seen that. So, <laughs> that's the Union's New South Wales, is it? Yeah, no, it's the um, ANMF, uh, oh, the, yeah. uh, the um, Nurses and Midwife Federation in New yeah, South Wales. Yeah. There, there are pockets of workers who are pursuing enterprise bargaining. Uh, uh, it's serious struggles around wages and conditions, and particularly in parts of the government, and the New South Wales nurses is a good example of that, and I think it's rising to the fore in Tasmania as well. Yeah, exactly, in Tasmania, yes. Did you hear that uh, the federal uh, Labor is taking over the Tasmanian branch? uh, uh, No, no, I haven't. Sorry, I know that's a side issue. I saw the headline, but I haven't really got into it. Just to reinforce the, the sort of the general point, though, is that enterprise bargaining, so despite those, you know, really important struggles in enterprise bargaining, enterprise bargaining is actually less and less effective as an avenue for improvement to wages and conditions. Yep, that's true. And that's the overall, there's excellent research done on that, including by people like Ali Pennington, who I think you get yeah. on your program from time to time to, for commentary on all of that. Um, She's a smart one. The fourth and final thing that would need to happen, because uh, the timelines match up, is it would have to be a really big claim, more than the CPI, mm. in the forthcoming annual wage review. Now, we've just had one, and there's another one coming up, of course, that starts getting underway in early December with the setting of the program of dates. Now, that decision would uh, uh, would set any wage increase, if they awarded one, for that two... You know, it, it, it's got to be made by the uh, June 30th, 2022... Uh, sorry, 2023. So that struggle over the annual wage review is the big working-class-wide struggle that is going to see how close we get to uh, the forecast. We know that Treasury and the Reserve Bank won't get us to the forecast. They don't do that. That's not their role. Mm. Uh, No, they're just observers. Yeah. And so for all those people who haven't done it, that is, join their union or get active in their union, uh, there's another song that was sort of floating around roughly the same time as that one called um, "The Long," you know, "The Preacher and the Slave," all about um, preachers. I think it was invoking a future Scott Morrison in some way. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one called um, "The Talking Union Blues." Ah, oh, okay. And, um, uh, well, I'm a little bit under the weather. I have been known to do a rap version of this, but it's. Um, it goes like this. Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You've got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You've got to build your union. You've got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys and girls, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, 
take your kids to the seashore. Now, that's, there's more to it than that. Um, that's course, re- that's really neat. Union Blues, that's Pete Seeger, of course. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, 1941. I'll, I'll look it up. Did you hear that um, Scott Morrison has been picked up for a, a speaking tour in Japan by some sort of self-help uh, Japanese millionaire guru? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I wonder whether he uh, he was on leave with pay or without pay when he was doing that. The, <laughs> the point about referring to that song and, you know, understanding the relationship between between continuity and change. I mean, you know, think capitalism is still capitalism. It's a different beast in some respects these days, but it's also the same. And our labour movement has got to go back to its continuity of saying, well, do we want to have an improvement in living standards or otherwise done to us by a government or the Reserve Bank or the Fair Work Commission? Or do we want to take charge ourselves? Do we want to be the protagonists defining our future? And that's the big question that we face in the months ahead. We've got to learn how to do that while at the same time not giving free kicks that enable the possibility of a return of the LNP. We've got to learn to do that uh, by challenging the inadequacies inadequacies of Labor's program at the same time as supporting what it does well and uh, uh, asserting us, working-class organisations that are growing, that are growing, as taking command of our future. Yeah, politically astute, but in solidarity. Yeah, Keep an eye on the ball. We in Australia have never, haven't known for a long time. Yeah. Well, that's a good warning, uh, Don. Um, that's a very interesting food for thought, I'd have to say. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. It's lovely to be back with you all, and uh, very best wishes. And that was Don Sutherland, who is down in Tasmania on, uh, um, yeah, it's probably colder down there than it is here. Uh, But anyway, uh, very uh, salient words to be considered. Uh, Today we uh, looked at uh, Richard Boyle and uh, David McBride, the whistleblowers that are uh, presenting at court. Uh, Catherine Kelly from the Alliance Against Political Prosecutions uh, talked to us. Uh, Mark Davis, uh, lawyer, um, former journalist, uh, uh, talked to us about uh, the uh, legal ramifications for Blockade Australia, but also the uh, democratic, uh, the rights landscape that Australians now find themselves in. Uh, and uh, Kevin went through the week like a dose of salt with satire and Donald Sutherland um, had a reflection on uh, the state of play at the moment uh, leading into what is now being called the Employment Summit, which is September the 1st and 2nd. 
another one of these tripartite meetings wherein government employers and uh, the union movement uh, talk, go over a bit, little bit like, uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at the entrails. <laughs> Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents and uh, we'll go out with uh, the song that uh, Don was talking about. It's called Pie in the Sky and it's by Utah Phillips. Uh, here we go. A long-haired preacher's come out every night I try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat uh, They will answer in voices so sweet You will eat, you will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Way up high, work and pray Live on hay you get by in the sky when you die, that's the lie. The starvation army they play, and they shout and they clap and they pray. Uh, when they got all your coins on the drum, uh, they will tell you when you're on the bomb. You will eat, you will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky, way up high, working on hay, you get by in the sky when you die, that's a lie, holy rollers and jumpers come out, and they roll and they jump and they shout, I give your money to Jesus, they say, and you lead on that glorious day, you will Side by side, we for freedom will fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, after the correctors will sing this refrain. You will eat, you will eat by and by. Uh, when you learn how to cook and how to fry, uh, chop some wood, do you good. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants included grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.